Anxiety and worries are born in the uncertain. They are born in the unknown. Anxiety and worries are cultivated in the uncertain soil in a field we do not own. They are incubated in the lack of sovereignty and our lack of control. Now here is the truth. All of us are anxious. All of us have worries. All of us have stress. Because some people have more anxiety or more visible anxiety doesn't mean they're more sinful. Just means their stress and their anxiety is more visible. And perhaps they're more honest. The truth is out there. And so the point is not if you feel like you have more anxiety or more stress that you are more a sinner. No, that's not what it is saying at all. Is that we are in a broken world. And we are broken people. And so we live in anxiety and stress and worries. Just who, what sin is. Not just sin in ourselves, but sin in the world that causes anxiety and stress upon us. This is reality. We have learned, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, that the certainty of life is that we will die. The uncertainty of life is knowing when we will die. And Solomon has been teaching us to view life through the lens of death. To view life through the lens of death. More specifically, our lives should be shaped informed, guided, the, guided by the uncertainty, not certainty. Now, that may not make sense. But what Solomon is saying is that our lives should be guided with the uncertainty of knowing when we won't. We don't know when we're going to die. Instead of the certainty that we will die. We should view life with the lens that tomorrow is not promised. And the next moment is not promised. We can view life through the lens that we're not in control. We can live life with a perspective of what we do not know. And we do not know the timing of our death. And we do not control it. The uncertainty of our life and the timing of our death should shape the certainties and the manner in which we live our life. What we do not know or do not control should inform how we live in the presence. So what don't we know? Well, we don't know when we're going to die. But there's also other things that we don't know as well. What is the uncertainty that, we should, be our, that should be our present lens? What is the uncertainty in how we should view each and every moment? What is the uncertainty that should instruct us? Number one. We do not know how to predict the future. We do not know the future. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not when disaster, what disaster may happen on earth. Some things are inevitable. And we can see patterns and predict some things and some uh, events. 
but the future is unknowable. We, we get this from weathermen, right? right? Or weather person, sorry. Weather person, right? They're pretty accurate. They have some science, and they can kind of predict, well, the percentage of this is going to happen, but you really never know exactly what's going to happen. It just happens. The weathermen don't control the weather. They don't even know exactly what it's going to be. We cannot predict or know the future. We know this. We know this as a fact in our life. But most of us live our lives as if we know our future is certain. We live our lives every day thinking that tomorrow is promised. And the next day is promised. And the day after that. We take out the reality that death is certain. And the unknowing of our death is uncertain. We plan and organize our days as if we know tomorrow is promised and we know the next moment is promised. It's not a bad thing to plan. That's not what Solomon is saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's not. It's forget your plans. Throw them out the window. Live each day chaotically. That's not the point at all. But if we live each moment realizing that whatever plans you have or have might not come, that would change how we live. How would your present be different if you know that you planned something out and it may or may not happen? My wife has taught me this day in and day out. I like to plan and know exactly what's going to happen, but my wife usually has a better plan and takes to change all our plans at the last minute. And it's always, always better, but it stresses me out because I had the plan. I knew what the future was going to be. plans aren't always that way. How would that change your plans with the knowing that the future is not promised? How would it change the way you live your life or the actions you live today if knowing that the next moment isn't promised? What would you do? How would you live? How would you interact with the people around you? How would you interact with your possessions? How would you interact with the gifts God has given you? The way we should view life is that we do not know the future. The way we should live our life is that we don't know how to do what only God can do. We don't know how He does it. We don't know when He does it. We don't know what God can do and we can't do what God can do. Ecclesiastes 11.5 As you do not know the way, the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Right? We can build wind farms in this world, right? And we can test it out. This is where the wind normally is. And, but we don't control the wind. And if the wind doesn't blow, the windmills don't produce energy. We don't control life or death or even the wind. It's the Spirit. God controls these things. God is the one who makes these things. In Genesis 1-2, we're told that the Spirit in general, in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is the beautifier of things. In the Apostles' Creed, what is the first thing that we, we talk about as the Spirit, we confess? Does anyone know? No, that's the Father. What's the Spirit, we confess? He's the giver of life. 
He's the giver of life. And I think a better way, he's the beautifier of life. Look at the beginning of Genesis, right? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are creators, right? But listen to what the Spirit describes in the Spirit. The earth was without form. This is after God has created. In the beginning, God has created. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So this, this formless void kind of thing that was already created, the Spirit was hovering, and then after that, the Spirit beautifies all of creation. Day after day after day, the Spirit beautifies the creation. And the same it is with us in John 3, 8, right? John talks about, says John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, this is reality. Each one of us is given new life, is, is resurrected, is taken from a dead thing to a live thing by the Spirit. And the Spirit's work day in and day out through the ordinary means, which is the hearing and preaching and participating in the Word of God, the sacraments. You know what the, 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 the last ordinary means of which God uses? The discipline of the church. Through those means, right, the Spirit beautifies us, transforms us, sanctifies us, makes us more like Him, day in and day out. We don't control that. We do not control the Spirit at all. We are the Spirit's work. We are the Spirit's work. Nicola and I often talk about, every week we talk about the, the worship service. We reflect on it, plan the next one, and we think about, man, uh, you know, sometimes things fall flat or things, things like, wow, that was really good. But here's the truth of it. An experience or emotion doesn't indicate whether the Spirit was present. This is really important. The experience or emotional high does not indicate whether the Spirit was acting or not acting. We do not know. The Spirit moves the way the Spirit moves. And I think at times, he, he moves through ordinary, mundane things in ways in which in our emotional lows. And we're just like, wow, God's not really present here. It, it, it makes it when, when, this is, it is a little critique. It is a critique of Pentecostal churches which demand some evidence of the Spirit through the spiritual gifts. Well, there, there, God is present now. How do you know? How do you know that the Spirit is present? How do you know the Spirit is not working? Here's what I do know. We know what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. Are the people kind? Are they gentle? Are they... Those are long-term evidences, right? It's not like, oh, that person was gentle in that moment, or that person was... Long-term, the Spirit's work in our lives. We do not know when the Spirit is working or when He's not. The Spirit moves. God moves and creates in mysterious ways. It's His job. We do not know when the God works in us or for us, but we know He does. God's argument with Job, remember uh, Job, but God has, uh, has tested Job and has taken all his, 
his family away, his possessions away, and he's taken his health away. And, the, and eventually Job is beginning to have this argument with God. And uh, Job just wants to die. This is it's not worth any of it. And then God responds to Job's criticism. And this is what uh, God says to Job. Partly. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Like, Job, have, were you in control of all things? Were you in control of creation? I didn't think so. And goes in 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. That's a fascinating thing. He's, he personified lightning. God said, when lightning signs, it's saying to him, here I am, God. Can you control that, Job? Are you in charge of that power? God makes. We manage. We're stewards. Here's the, the, the pastor joke when, as people come to me and might complain uh, about the weather. And so what my, they're like, oh, it's bad weather out there. So listen. And they often ask, can you pray for God for those things to happen? Right? Listen, I tell them, listen, I'm in sales, not management. I'm not in control of those things. Here's the thing. We're all in sales. We're not in, none of us are in management. There's one guy in control. We do not know how to do what God does or how he does it. Nor we have we have that power. View life in that way. View life, right, that we can't predict the future and we don't have God's power. View life that we do not know how to guarantee success or avoid failure. You do not know how to guarantee success, and you do not know how to avoid failure. Ecclesiastes 11.6. In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. We all want to be success in our life. I think we can agree with that. We all want to be success in our career. We all want to be success in whatever games we play, right? I don't like to lose. I've learned to be a better loser, right? I want to be success in my relationship, right? I want to be the best husband. I want to be a successful father. Everything, no one aims for failure. No one wants to be a failure. But here's the thing. There is not a one-to-one relationship on one thing. Is do this and you will be a success. And do this and you'll be a failure. We don't know. There's too many variables. We're not in control of that. We're not in control. God is sovereign. Robert Burns uh, wrote a poem called To a Mouse. And this poem is the inspiration to John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men. And so he wrote this poem because as he was uh, uh, plowing his field, he plowed over a a mouse den and killed them all. Right, and so he wrote this as an apology to the mouse. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The mouse thought he was secure. The mouse thought he built a great home for his family and that he was safe. He had no idea that a plow was coming or when it was coming. I've done the same thing mowing my, my lawn. I've gone over many uh, rabbits then with, uh, it's two or three times I've done this, 
where there's little baby rabbits all covered in, the, in my lawn, and you go over them with the lawnmower. Yeah, it's about what you think it is, <laughs> right? I don't think the rabbit planned out, hey, Kay, this is a bad place to put my den. Probably thought it was safe and secure. But the best laid plans of rabbits and men. So it is with our plans. We don't control. We don't control the future. We don't control how God works. We don't control whether something is success or a failure. Surrendering all of that to God means grasping that we are not in control, but that we trust that God is in control and that God loves us and that God is for us. And God has a plan for us. And God uses all things for our good. That's what it means to surrender to God. You know, the worst thing in life is not death. Jesus demonstrates this because he's willing to die for us. This is the worst thing in, the, in life is, is, is not death because I need to die for you so you actually may live. And here's the thing. There are worse things than failure in life. And there's better things than success. Hear that carefully because I'm not sure you all believe that. There are worse things than being a failure at something in this world. And there are better things than being a success in the things of this world. The worst thing is failure to live wisely. Failure to live for God. So how do we live wisely in those uncertainties? How do we live right now knowing that we don't know the future? That we don't know the work of God and how He does it? We can't, or knowing that we can't guarantee our success or failure? Here it is, what it says in Ecclesiastes. Live generously right now. Live purposefully right now. The uncertainties in our life shouldn't produce anxiety or worry, but motivate us to live generously right now. Ecclesiastes 11, 1-2. Hear it again. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, if you don't know what that means, you're in good company. <laughs> We, there's, a, there's three thoughts on this idiom, but all of them mean the same thing. It's an idiom that we really don't understand, but we think the Targum, which is the Jewish interpretation translation of Zahad, this is what it means. This is what they thought it was. They thought it was a description of giving your bread to the poor. Be generous and give your bread to the poor and let it go to wherever it goes to. And it also refers to uh, sending your ships out. Just go send your ships out. And let them be. And Solomon would have understood this clearly because he owned many ships. Send your ships out generously and see where they go. And the next line gives us even more clue. Give. Cast. Casting means surrendering. Giving it all. So putting it out there. Giving, says the other, give a portion to the seven. Seven is a, a, uh, the number that means kind of perfection. Give perfectly. And then what does it say beyond that? Or even to eight. Give, give generously, and then do I know what he could do even more? Give abundantly generously. Give even more than that. Live your life in that way. 
Don't just say, oh, I'm a little generous. Because most of us think we're generous. Most of us think we are generous. And then he says, even to the eight. Go beyond that. Be extraordinarily generous. Be extraordinarily generous today because tomorrow might not happen. Be extraordinarily generous now because the next moment is not promised. And we can be extraordinarily generous, and you've heard this before, with your time, with your talent, with your treasures. Be extraordinarily generous with your time. Give people your time. It is easy for me to be transactional with people. I got plans, I got things to do, I got things to check off my day so I can enjoy my day. And so I just use people to get my things done. I demand my own space and my own boundaries. I'm an introvert. You know what an introvert is? It's not a person who doesn't like people, right? I like people quite a bit for the most part, right? But it means that people I, I drain my energy. And so I usually need to go away from people uh, to get rejuvenated. But here's the thing that I've learned. When someone needs my time and I give it to them, I, and if I say, no, no, I need space, right? If I have to give my time to someone and I'm drained, here's what I found. I do not die from that. I, I don't know. It's the rest of you introverts here. I just want to hear this clearly. If you have to give your time and someone needs your time, like, oh, no, I, need this. I don't have the energy to. If you give that energy, what you'll find is that you do not die. And what actually you'll find is that the Spirit actually begins to beautify you in that moment. It is, I'm telling you. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm not saying abandon all alone time. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus demonstrated that quite clearly, that he has alone time with the Father, right? This is a good discipline to have. But don't say to someone, listen, I need my own space on my own time. You can, I'll deal with your problem tomorrow, right? What you'll find is that the Spirit can actually beautify you if you extend your boundaries a little bit. Given my abilities and my talent, generously, God has given you talents and things, and he wants you to be generous with those things to bless the people around you and bless the world, not to just benefit you. Are you willing to do that? Give of your tre treasures generously. Are you holding loosely the things of this world? Or are you holding tightly to your possessions, thinking that they're yours, that they belong to you, that God gave them to you and to you alone? or that God gave them to you to be generous. Think about it. God gave them to you because God is an extraordinary, generous God. He doesn't give to his children to then hoard. He doesn't say don't enjoy those things. That's not what he's saying. Enjoy the things that he's given you. Enjoy the time he's given you, enjoy the people he's given you, enjoy the talents that he's given you, enjoy the treasures you, but be extraordinarily generous with them. Because what you'll find is that's the character of who God is. And that's the character in which he's creating you to be. Be generous with them now. If you're holding on to things, you need to check your heart. Are you holding on to your possessions or your money? Or are you freely giving and willing to share? 
a lot of people will translate this, right? We, we need to, to give a portion to seven or eight, right? Let's talk about diversify, right? We need to diversify our portfolio, right? And so that's a lot of the message we hear in the world, right? To, to save your money up, which is not a bad thing. To, it's not saying don't save your money up. It's not saying do that. But we know in this world, we're told to diversify our portfolio. I put some stocks and bonds and real estate, right? So if one fails, that you still have the rest, right? But here's what this is saying. Diversify your portfolio of giving. Don't just give one way. Give a multitude of ways. Be extraordinarily generous with all things, with all people, all the time. Because you don't know if tomorrow is promised. We know when God will give without expecting back. This is what God does. God gives without expecting back. This is what unconditional love is. Unconditional love is unconditional, generous giving. As a parent, I want to be extraordinarily generous with my kids. Parents, I love giving my kids things. I love it. Our Father loves to be generous with us. It's who He is. He loves to be generous so much with us, He gave His Son for us. He gave His own life for us. He was willing to die for us. He gave his life to die for us. That's how generous, because he knew that's the worst thing that could happen for us, to be separated from him. So he was willing to die for us, to give us his life so that we can give. God's love for us, God's generous love for us is our motivation. It's not our obedience to God, it's His love for us should so excite us that we love Him back. Love is our motivation. Not to be loved, that's not our motivation, because we are already loved. That love should generate in us a, such a generosity and such a response of loving God back that what do we do? We give. We give generously, like God gives. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. I just want you to understand. What, what's, what is he talking about here? He's talking about giving. That's what sowing, this reaping and sowing is talking about. If you want to reap bountifully, what he's saying? Give. Give bountifully. If you, if, you don't, if you don't want to reap much at all, hoard it. Keep it for yourself. You're not, you're not going to reap anything. Now, is he talking about uh, if, you, right, if you reap, if you give away that you're going to receive treasures on earth? That's not what he's saying at all. That's not what, that's not what he's saying at all. But he says, must give as he's decided in his heart, right? God's not going to comp compel you to give. This must be from your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For giving must be generated from love, as God is able to make all grace abound to you. So having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as is written. He has distributed freely, given freely. He has given to the poor. That's you and I. His righteousness endures forever. The other thing secret here about giving, 
is that God will give you sufficiency to give generously all things, all the time. We, we talk about, right, the, gener- the motivation of giving is our heart, right? But you and I know our hearts are broken, right? And so the imagery in which the, uh, the Scripture talks about our heart, God, God needs to circumcise our heart, right? It means he needs to cut something out. Now, circumcision is related to a very sensitive organ, male organ. And it was, a, it was a reminder of God's grace. And here's the thing about that sensitive organ, is that circumcision happens to the most sensitive part of that sensitive organ. And here's what he's saying to you, right? I'm trying to remind you of the most sensitive part of the most sensitive organ about my grace and what you need to be. This is what it does. Circumcision of our heart, circumcision from this world is painful, period. If you think it's not going to be, you're out of luck. It will be painful. But God needs to circumcise our heart for us to have passions. He needs to circumcise our passions of this world. Get rid of them so we have the passions of God for this world. Not passions of the things of this world. But passion and love for this world. For God. That's what God is doing. He's changing our heart to his heart. Be extraordinarily generous. The uncertainties in life should not cause anxiety or worry, but should motivate us to be extraordinarily generous. And they also so extraordinary to, to motivate us to, be, to live purposely each day. Ecclesiastes 11.6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What he's saying, in the morning... Work, not your occupation, but what God has called you to do, your vocation. In the morning work, in the evening work, because you don't know what will be prosperous. You don't know what will succeed. So what he's saying in the morning and evening is what he's saying, do your job all the time, all the time. You have a purpose that God has created you for, do that job all of the time. Why? Because we do not know what things will be prosperous and what will not be. We know we are called to make disciples, Matthew 28, 19. And today, all of us, today, right now, is my opportunity to make disciples. And not tomorrow, not the day after that, but today is my opportunity to make a disciple, to demonstrate God's generous love with my actions towards someone, by giving them my time, by giving them my talent, by giving them my treasures, by sharing God's love with them verbally. That's how you make a disciple. You share it verbally, you demonstrate it with your life towards them by simply just giving your time, listening to them, giving them your ear, being generous in that way. That's an opportunity to make a disciple. Now, we can do more things, and one person becomes more interested. There's lots of ways we can study the, God's word with them, but making disciples, initially sharing it. 2 Timothy 4, 2-5, Paul talks about this way, preach the word, that's for all of us, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry, which is what? Make disciples. Preach the word in the evening, in the morning, all the time, every day. That's your purpose. You can do that everywhere and anywhere. You do not need the government's permission. You do not need your work's permission. Now, you need to be wise about how you do that in certain places. But you can do it anywhere. You can love anyone anywhere. You can share how God has worked in your life anywhere. You can quote scripture without telling people you're quoting scripture anywhere. Trust me, when you do, they'll think you're incredibly wise. I know better. We don't know where or how God works or how, what seeds that he grows. We do not know what the good soil is and we don't know what the good soil isn't. We, don't, we do know that our job is to scatter the seed everywhere, all the time, generously, with our time, with our talents, and with our treasure. Living purposefully today means loving others with the gospel of Jesus. And that gospel of Jesus is with our words and with our actions. Don't let our lives be shaped and lived out by your anxiety and by your stress or the certainty of what we control. Because there are things that we do control. Let our lives be intentionally lived out, enjoyed today by living in the knowledge of our uncertainty. I know that doesn't make sense. But this is the reality of which we live. Let our lives be enjoyed today by living in the knowledge of our uncertainty, that we don't know the future, and it's okay. That we don't know how God is working, and it's okay. That we don't know whether we can guarantee success or failure. But let us live wisely today with the truth of the uncertainties in the forefront of our minds. Let us live wisely that today God has given us today, this moment, not the next and not tomorrow. That's not promised. It may come in which you'll have that day to live generously, to live purposely for God. But let us be, live extraordinarily generous lives. Let us live extraordinarily purposely for God all the time. And here's what it means. If you live extraordinarily purposely for God, this is what it means. You live extraordinarily purposely for others. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will, they have, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The parable is not saying it's bad to store up things. 
It's not what it's saying. But if you're storing up things for yourself in this world, you have not understand the purpose of your life. Each day should be lived extraordinarily generously for God, which means for others. Each day should live extraordinarily purposefully for others because that's how you love God. Live richly for God today, which means living richly for others today.